This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa and on Channel 902 on the DSTV OWK. And starting tomorrow, we'll be migrating to Channel 802. My name is Spumele Lezonde and I'm with Amanda Machaka, Wisani Matebula and Musibudi Makura. Your top stories. Relatives of abducted Zimbabwean journalists release a purported first images of him in solitary confinement. South African authorities shine the spotlight on issues faced by children. In economics, South Africans brace, uh, brace themselves for another petrol hike. In sports, the FIFA World Cup Under-17 Women's Championship draws open up some interesting matches. Here's Amanda Majak. Thank you, Spumelele. Good evening. At least 17 million people globally accessed life-saving antiretroviral medicines at the end of 2015. The Global AIDS update says this is an additional 2 million people gaining access over a 12-month period. In South Africa, 3.4 million people were on treatment, the highest number in the world, followed by Kenya at 900,000. Sarah Kimani reports. According to the new UN AIDS report entitled Global AIDS Update 2016, the scale-up of antiretroviral treatment since 2010 by many of the world's most affected countries has reduced AIDS-related deaths from 1.5 million in 2010 to 1.1 million last year. The report indicates that gains were greatest in the world's most affected region, that is the East Afri- Eastern and Southern African regions, where coverage of treatment increased from 24% in 2010 to 54% in 2015, reaching a total of 10.3 million people. The report states that in sub-Saharan Africa, adolescent girls and young women account for 25% of new HIV infections among adults. Intergenerational sex, obstacles to education and sexual reproductive health services, poverty, food insecurity and violence are key drivers of this increased vulnerability. The World Health Organization is now advising people returning from areas affected by the Zika virus to follow safe sex practices or to abstain from sex for at least eight weeks. The recommendation, which doubles the abstinence period that the WHO had previously advised, comes after scientists found the virus lingers longer than previously thought in blood or other body fluids. It also said women should defer pregnancy for six months if their partner had symptoms of the Zika virus. We come in our diversity with a common desire to change the fortunes. With Zimbabwe's elections just two years away, five smaller opposition parties have formed a coalition. The Coalition of Democrats, or CODE, will work together to try to unseat long-serving President Robert Mugabe. The group says it's ready to work with any progressive political party that is unhappy with the state of the country and opposed to the current government. The main opposition parties led by Morgan Changirai and People First Joyce Mujuru have indicated they are not ready to join the group. Co-chair Gilbert Zikiti. We come in our diversity with a common desire to change 
the fortunes of our country and unite under the framework of coalition of Democrats for Assembly Court. These leaders gathered here, including those who are not here and those who are sitting among you, representing their political parties, endured painstaking deliberations and discussions, spanning over several months. South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission says the number of independent candidates for the August local government elections has increased. The IEC has reminded candidates that the closing date to register candidacy is on Thursday. Deputy Chairperson of the IEC, Terry Zelani, says the increase in independent candidates is good for democracy. An independent candidate can be nominated by any person within the community. You can even be nominated by your own uh, family members to contest as an independent. A person is not accountable to any political party. You don't have to, 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 to register as a political party because you'll be contesting as an individual. However, the number of the wards that are going to be contested uh, will be 4,649 awards. And finally, renowned author and Nobel laureate Wole Soyinka has urged people to free themselves from mental slavery. He was speaking at the Africa Month Colloquium in Johannesburg, South Africa. This year's theme is titled Politics, Culture and the New African. Soyinka has considered it's almost impossible for Africans to do away with the brainwash that has been instilled to look down on their cultures. We cannot discard what we have learned. It's too late. We've eaten the food, it's already in the bloodstream. But the proportion which we give to the borrowing from other cultures, that is what decides the factor of whether we're completely enslaved by other cultures or we see other cultures simply as adjuncts to what is basically our own. That's the latest news. Thank you very much, Amanda, for that update at 17.06 Central African Time. Now, relatives of abducted Zimbabwean journalist, cum political activist Itai Zamara, who mysteriously went missing on the 9th of March last year, have released perverted first images of him in solitary confinement. Patton Zamara, the brother of abducted journalist, held a press conference in Harare on Monday at which he released pictures of what looked like his brother with his hands tied behind his back and a bandage around his head. The images released by the family bring a fresh life to the Zamara saga that was now believed to be dead due to the long incarceration. For more than a year, the forced disappearance of the Itai Zamara has created tension between the state security and democratic players in the country. Samun Machema reports from Harare. Images said to be those of abducted journalists were released on Monday in Harare as family members brought a new twist to the mysterious disappearance of Itai Zamara. Zamara, who has been missing for close to 15 months, was never seen or heard from after he was abducted for allegedly speaking out against 92-year-old President Robert Mugabe. 
although it is not clear yet if the images released were truly of abducted retired Zamara, the family spokesperson Patson Zamara is convinced the person in the images is his brother. Zamara refused to disclose where he was being kept and whether he was still alive or not, but from his statement during a media briefing in Arare Monday, Patson claims he got the images from sources within the military intelligence, some of whom abducted the brother Itai. Patson Zamara said, So the following image is a professionally verified and authentic image of Itai Zamara in one of the places they kept him. This is how evil these individuals we refer to as leaders are. I shall avail more details as we go. But uh, this is one of the images we actually managed to retrieve. From, uh, from the system. In fact, we asked for proof of life then, and I'm not at liberty to share with you when this image was taken for reasons you get to know along the way, and also due to the fact that we're still in the process of connecting all the dots regarding this matter. Patson claims that his brother forced disappearance was carried out by certain elements in President Robert Mugabe's reign. After this exposition, every Zimbabwean and the whole world shall know how evil these people are. It is indeed unexpected that the police failed to come up with a single lead regarding my missing brother. Of course, I am convinced that it is not that they do not know what happened, but they are working under strict instruction. But God has his own ways. We have engaged in a lot of processes behind the scenes in our quest to locate the truth regarding the ties and forced disappearance. Some individuals from within the evil system, from within the evil establishment, actually volunteered information regarding who abducted the tie, why and where he was kept. This heinous, this austere act was executed by state security agents. In particular, that's a very key point there, in particular, the military intelligence. During the media briefing on Monday, Patson Zamara challenged Robert Mugabe to dispute allegations that his men were behind the forced disappearance of journalist Itai. This is a brave stance against dreaded Robert Mugabe. Incontestable evidence was availed to us, and I dare the authorities that be, I dare Mr. Mugabe and his surrogates to prove me wrong. They can't because this is the truth. This is nothing but the truth. I cannot at this juncture state my brother's fate in the hands of these gangsters. But I can categorically inform you that Itai Zamara was abducted by the military intelligence under direct instruction and supervision of Zanbia. For choosing to speak out against their misrule and leadership failure, they abducted Itai in broad daylight. They thought they would get away with this evil deed as usual, but not this time around. They pressed the wrong button. I shall continue to unveil more details regarding what really transpired to Itai, no amount of threats shall cause me to cower from the truth. Zamara added, Definitely we know we're given names of the people who are behind this, but like I stated, I'm not at liberty at this juncture to mention the names. Meanwhile, the International Coalition Against Enforced Disappearance has called on Zimbabwe to come up with legislation to protect people from falling victim to forced disappearances. The call comes at a time the world is commemorating the International Week of the Disappeared, with Zimbabwe listed as one of the countries with a history of forced disappearances. 
Zimbabwe is yet to sign and ratify the United Nations Convention for the Protection of All Persons from Enforced Disappearance. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchema. Survival International says it has learned that a French logging company and official partner of the World Wildlife Fund, WWF, is deforesting a huge area of rainforest in the southern southeast Cameroon without the consent of local Baka pygmies who have lived there and managed the land for generations. Rugia is described as an integrated forest and trade company and a large forest operator in a WWF press release and report. It is felling trees in an estimated 600,000 hectare area, which is more than it is permitted to do under Cameroonian law. Michael Huran is a campaigner at Survival International and he tells us how WWF came to partner with Rugia. Well, I think really only WWF can answer that question for sure. But this kind of partnership, and this isn't the only partnership like this between WWF and a logging company in Cameroon, this kind of partnership, I think, does force people to ask themselves whether WWF and Rougier, for example, are so different after all. WWF, 20 years ago now, formally promised to never support resource extraction, like logging, like mining, if it hadn't received the free, prior and informed consent of the indigenous people whose land it was. And it still says this on its website, that this is something that WWF will never do. Yet in Cameroon, it seems that this principle and many others have just been really thrown out of the window. WWF's work in Cameroon is, by and large, a string of broken promises that it's made to the backer hunter-gatherers and their neighbours as well. And there have been many, many reports going back a long time that its work is not at all sustainable, that it's opening up previously remote areas of the forest to wildlife trafficking and the bushmeat trade. And many backer across the region are saying that their game, which they depend on, the animals and wildlife that they depend on, is disappearing from the forest. Now, the activities of Rougier, as described by Survival International, also include price fixing. Now, tell us more about this. So this is going back uh, about at least a decade or more. There have been these different reports of um, Rougier and its subsidiaries engaging in these different kinds of illegal activities, of which price fixing was one. Logging outside the demarcated concession, removing trees which it wasn't authorized to remove, going beyond its quota. It was allocated a particular number of trees that it could remove. But like I said, these kinds of legal standards are really the bare minimum. And even if Rougier hadn't been doing these things, you know, had been following Cameroonian legal standards, it's still not enough. That wouldn't include the full respect of the backer of the backer's rights. But now Survival Internationals also say that they recently wrote to Rougier asking whether they had acquired the backers' consent for the logging on their land, and the answer was in the affirmative. Has Survival International since found out from the backer whether this is true? No, they answered in the negative. So we asked, have you received the backers' free, prior and informed consent? You know, did you go to all of the backer communities affected or that might be affected by your work? and give them the opportunity to say no to Rougier's work. And all they said in response was, the backer are aware of us and our work and our operations in Cameroon, which is a very, very, very different thing. I mean, of course the backer are going to be aware 
of the disastrous um, effect of this work on their forest, but that's a very different thing to them actually being given the choice to express their opinion and then for that opinion to actually be respected by Rougier and the government. According to a recent report produced by the European Union, not a single logging company is operating legally in Cameroon. Now, experts say that no logging activities are being carried out at sustainable levels. Is the Cameroon government aware of the activities of Rougier? And if so, why haven't they been kicked out or held to account in some way? Well, yes, the government is aware of the activities of Rougier, although often the oversight the ability of the government to really keep track of exactly what these logging companies are doing is quite low. But by and large, yes, I mean, the Cameroonian government is aware of this particular report and claims made against logging companies. But I think the answer would be that this system does benefit the Cameroonian government, even if it doesn't necessarily benefit the Cameroonian people. Logging has in the past been used, as a, and today is still used, as a kind of way of building political support, effectively as a kind of political tool for politicians in Cameroon. So it is definitely benefiting some people in Cameroon, but really we're talking just about the elite, you know, a very, very small minority of the Cameroonian people. And Meanwhile, the people who are most directly affected by logging, by the work of Rougier, for example, like the Baka and their neighbours, are just seeing their lives made increasingly difficult. And that is Michael Huron, campaigner at Survival International, speaking to Jose Jotengake. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1718 Central African Time. Remember that you're still listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Pomele Lezondi with you until 1800 hours. Tomorrow, we are switching from... 902 2802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. That is 902 2802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. So today is the last time we are on frequency 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. Now, the second African Capital City Sustainability Forum has started in South Africa's capital, Pretoria. The forum affords African capital cities an opportunity to work together and learn from each other in developing and implementing innovative solutions for creating sustainable African cities. Experts say African cities can reach high levels of quality urban life when supported by appropriate policies, robust implementation mechanisms, and adequate infrastructural investments. More from Andri Snell, South African Deputy Minister for Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs. 
The forum is an initiative uh, by the mayors of the capital cities of the African continent to look specifically at the issue of sustainability. Uh, hence, it's called the African Capital Cities Sustainability Forum. And for this ga- particular gathering, it's 20, the mayors of 24 capital cities throughout the continent have uh, come together to share uh, experiences, to share approaches, but also to unite in action, in concrete action, to agree on how they can collaborate, to make African cities more livable, uh, more inclusive, and in the context of this discussion, more environmentally sustainable. In that regard, they would be looking at um, some of the major international agreements that have been made recently around uh, carbon level uh, reductions. They are also gearing their approach along the lines of the African Union uh, Agenda 2063, which spells out also a clear African vision for the kinds of African cities that we want. Also, Sustainable Development Goal 11, uh, adopted by the United, as part of the United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals, which talks about the cities and the towns that we want internationally, and also South Africa's own integrated urban development framework that was adopted recently uh, by Cabinet and announced on, on, on Freedom Day, that gives effect to the National Development Plan's vision for South African cities, making those cities more livable, more inclusive, uh, better governed, involvement by by citizens, and also making them more compact, connected, and more efficient places that are more environmentally sustainable. Now, Deputy Minister, putting South Africa on the spotlight, how would you say um, the country has done really in delivering you know, basic services and, and perhaps also infrastructure development and in terms of also addressing some of the challenges that would, of course, um, affect capital cities? How has South Africa done? Well, I, I think South Africa has in many ways done extremely well. Remember, we are 20 years into democracy. We are 15 years into democratic local government. And in that relatively short space of time, we have built more than three and a half million houses. We've rolled out electricity, water, sanitation connections to millions and millions of, of households that never had access to those services before, roads, clinics, all of those things have been done in a very short space of time. Of course, we recognize that there are challenges with the quality of those services in some areas, the sustainability of those services, um, and we also recognize that there are people who still need uh, access to, to those services, and we're working very, very hard to make sure that we address that in the shortest available time. What we regrettably haven't been so good at doing is to reverse the spatial patterns of apartheid. Under apartheid, our cities were divided. Black people, poor people were put on the periphery of our cities, where often they've had to commute for long distances and many hours access to social services, to economic opportunities on those peripheral areas 
have been limited. And that is why we've adopted an integrated urban development framework that very consciously gives us an approach to manage the very, very rapid pace at which urbanization is taking place in South Africa, but also to consciously start reversing those apartheid spatial patterns to build more integrated, uh, more compact, more dense, more efficient uh, cities. And today, only being the first day of the forum, have you been able to get an indication of perhaps um, the innovative solutions that other African countries that are represented at the forum have in terms of, you know, of course, creating sustainable cities? Well, I think that that lies uh, today with uh, mainly the the opening session. But already, uh, from South Africa's point of view, we were sharing with the gathering the initiatives that uh, that we have taken, uh, our experiences, our best practice. And in the many uh, plenary and commission sessions that will take place over the next couple of days, there will be input from all of the other countries and we look forward very, very much to, to also learning from them and, 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 the, and their experiences. And that is Andres Nell, Deputy Minister for Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs in South Africa, talking to Humuto Mopolane. Now, the South African government and civil society organizations are this week paying attention to some of the difficult issues faced by the country's children in commemoration of Child Protection Week. The annual campaign is run this year with the theme, Let Us All Protect Children to Move South Africa Forward. It is focusing in particular on child labor and exploitation, as well as unaccompanied minors from neighboring countries. For more on this issue, here's PJ Kluter, National Executive Director of Child Welfare South Africa. I think the most important thing for everybody to focus on is the word all. Let us all protect children to move South Africa forward. This is a call for the whole country, from young to old, to join hands in protecting the children. Currently, we have examples of a 12-year-old girl who's raped and sold for sex. That's under investigation. We have a state bungling a child pornography accused who walks free. These are the kind of things that are happening in our communities, in our homes, where children are being abused or not being protected within homes, not outside, but within the homes. Because people have to realize that a child in need is a need indeed from every person. Each person must do something about it. If you look at the theme secondly, the focus with regard to labor and exploitation Most people are unaware or believe that the exploitation, the sexual exploitation of children in particular, is done by tourists, pedophiles, and those areas. And this is where we're failing. We need to be focused and realize that the whole thing calls on each of us to take steps, active steps, to protect the children who live around us. Now, there's a concern, PJ, that although uh, sexual exploitation of children is serious, um, it is an issue which is hardly talked about. Uh, What's your assessment of this situation in this country? Well, the interesting part is that together with uh, ECPAT International, which is in child pornography, prostitution and trafficking, the launch has just been done on the 12th of May of the sexual exploitation of children in traveling and tourism has just been released. Now, that's scary in that some of the facts that have come out of that is that despite the fact that we have had a 20-year campaign to try and stop this, even after 20 years, the growth in the sexual exploitation of children in travel and tourism is 
frightened. It has increased drastically. The nature has changed dramatically. People seem to think when it comes to the sexual exploitation of children that it's, again, only tourists or the old profile was the white, western, wealthy, middle-aged man who traveled around looking for children. That's not the fact. The fact of the matter coming out of the report and a focus on South Africa was that we are one of the areas where sexual exploitation of children in travel and tourism is high. The problem is, is that the kind of person participating, coming out of corporates, coming out of travelers traveling within the town, who get an opportunity, they might not plan it, but they get the opportunity to have sex with a young girl or boy. And in doing that, they sexually exploit the child. And it's very frightening to see the low level of conviction and also to see the fact that it is very difficult to get the convictions in front of the courts. I think we were sitting with statistics that out of 49 cases of reported child pornography, only 26 cases were successfully referred to court and only nine convictions were secured. So what the global study and the South African study found is they focused and identified that this is a growing endemic problem within South Africa and the world. Well, I mean, now, apart from just uh, looking at uh, children in South Africa, uh, one of the main things uh, for this year, PJ, is uh, also, you know, the protection of uh, children who are non-South African and who are perhaps in the country. Tell us a little bit more about that and what is unique to those specific children who may be non-South African here. The danger to those children is a lot of them within the Republic are either unaccompanied or don't have formal papers. So they're not within the education system. They are sometimes brought in with non-family members. And as such, they are open to far greater exploitation because there's no one to protect them. There's no documentation showing their arrival into the country. So you can't provide the services to them. So it makes that child far more vulnerable without identity documents, without being able to come into our system and be cared for within it, within the education system, within the Department of Social Development, and only come out after something terrible has happened to them and then you can react to it because there's no way of tracing or following up on them. PJ Klute is the National Executive Director of Child Welfare South Africa on the line with Zekona Miso. 17.30 Central African Time, Amanda Machaka with the news headlines. Thank you, Spamelele. Good evening. With Zimbabwe's elections just two years away, five smaller opposition parties have formed a coalition. The Coalition of Democrats or Code will work together to try to unseat a long-serving president, Robert Mugabe. At least 17 million people globally accessed life-saving antiretroviral medicines at the end of 2015, according to Global AIDS Update. And the World Health Organization is now advising people returning from areas affected by the Zika virus to follow safe sex practices or to abstain from sex for at least eight weeks. Those are news headlines.
Thank you very much, Amanda. You still listen to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. That is Channel Africa One if you want to follow us on Twitter. And remember that if you find us on the DSTV audio bouquet, we are normally on Channel 902. But today is the last day that we will be on Channel 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. As of tomorrow, we will be on Channel 802. That is Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet from tomorrow. Now, South African journalist and one of our regular analysts at the station, Lizzie Lowe Vaudron, has written a book titled South Africa in Africa, Superpower or Neocolonialist? The book brings into focus fascinating views regarding South Africa today versus a newly democratic South Africa in relation to the rest of the continent. She joins us on the line. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest, Lizzie. Hello, Supermalele. Thank you. Mm. Um, now, Lizzo, what made you decide that you're going to write this book? You know, I've always wanted to write this very fascinating story of South Africa's role in Africa after the end of apartheid. Because I think, um, yes, there just aren't uh, many people who have written about it. Um, and we, we talk a lot. Um, and, I mean, there are so many South Africans who are now working on the continent that I've re- and I've been following it you know from um, the very early years when I lived in West Africa and when South African businesses just started and then of course on a political level with President Abraham Beki um, and his initi- initiatives in the AU and so on so um, up to today of course um, how things are now the relations with the continent the impact of xenophobia and um so but i looked at both um the political and um and the economic um let's say south african fora into africa or into the rest of africa after the end of apartheid Mm. Um, uh, but Lizzle, South Africa has changed so much from, let's say, South Africa in 1994 to South Africa under the Mbeki presidency to South Africa today. Yes, absolutely. I mean, 20 years is, in the bigger scheme of things, not such a long time. But there has been a, an evolution, definitely, um, when it comes to South Africa's role in Africa, because initially South Africa was seen as a model of reconciliation and democracy and good governance. Um, and um, other Africans sort of took the lead from South Africa. And, um, and I think South Africa was listened to in a way, but all, South Africa had what, you know, what I call in my book and, and um, academics called soft power. It also had hard power. It had the military and we had the... Um, peacemaking efforts in Burundi and the DRC, whereas today um, we no longer have either the soft power or the hard power, really, because militarily we just simply don't have the military capacity to send um, as many peacekeepers and so on um, into the rest of the continent. And yes, um, unfortunately, in the last couple of years, I think South Africa's aura as um, you know, a model of um, good governance and so on to be followed um, has been tarnished. Or, I mean, I, I don't think it's that dramatic. People still look up to South Africa in many ways for its highly sophisticated, diversified economy. It is the most industrialized nation on the continent. We have a lot to offer, but it hasn't, uh, things have changed.
Mm. Um, have there been new superpowers that have emerged in any of you? Well, people have spoken about Nigeria, but that's changed mm. in the last year or two. Yes, exactly. I think um, you know, superpower, the way that um, I would define it and, and the way I try to define it in the book is um, a country with a clout, with influence, um, that works for the good of the continent. And, you know, changes that we saw, for example, um, with NETPAD and, the, okay, the APRM wasn't that successful, but definitely the reform of the African Union that was driven by uh, Tabumbeki or Basanjo, Bukitlika um, of Algeria at the time. People remember that was now a long time ago. Um, you know, at the time... South Africa had that influence as a superpower. Now, as you say, uh, there there are the measurements. You could look at the size of the economy. So we now know that South Africa is only the third biggest economy after Nigeria and Egypt, but with an oil price slump. Now Nigeria is suffering, as you just said. So what what are we looking for in a superpower? Um, we are looking for that influence. I mean, a country like Ethiopia, um, while domestically it's not seen as very democratic, um, it has influence, especially in its region, because it spends a lot of money on um, military expenditure. It is one of the countries in the world that contributes the most to peacekeeping operations worldwide. Um, and in Africa, it houses the African Union, you know, so Ethiopia is a country within its region that has influence. Um, but there are other new um, powers coming up. You know, Kenya, the Ivory Coast, for example, is regaining a lot of its um, previous um, stature that it had in the region of being the powerhouse and economic powerhouse. So I don't think today... Um, there is a clear superpower on the continent in 2016, but there are emerging powers, and then um, South Africa that is a little bit, I would say, on the decline, but still has, um, as I say in my book, still has a lot going for it. Mm. Um, what changed, um, Lisa? I'm sure we're going to find that in your book. But what changed? Yes. Because um, there was a story of the African Renaissance, for example, that Tabumbegi used to advocate for when he was president. Um, what's changed in South Africa? Why is South Africa not seen as that country to look up to? Yes, I think um, it's definitely the leadership, domestic leadership. And um, as I said Economically, South Africa is growing at a much slower pace than um, our other, you know, fellow um, member states of the AU and other African countries, um, and and so and there hasn't been that investment in um, peacekeeping operations and so on. Um, but yes, I think the main factor, and everybody would say that. I mean, those who follow domestic politics much closer than I do, um, would agree that um, the leadership in the ANC, the accusations of corruption, I mean, even President Jacob Zuma himself said the other day in Parliament, he goes around Africa and people say to him, look what's happening in your Parliament, they are ructions all the time, and he's embarrassed, but South Africans would turn around and say that actually the root cause of those problems in Parliament would be 
um, President Jacob Zuma's, um, you know, governance uh, issues. So, um, so unfortunately, that 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 has changed, and also. Yes. You know, I think maybe maybe we were a bit lucky with um, President Thabo Mbeki. He had this um, real vision for Africa. He knew Africa very well. He was interested. He still is. I mean, he is still most of the time in Ethiopia and trying to make peace in Sudan and South Sudan and yes. so on. You know, so we were we were lucky. I think um, there was that. Um, uh, you know, he was he, he was in power for for two terms, and so um, it was also a good time there, just on the verge of the Africa rising, and there was that enthusiasm on the continent for new things and new projects, whereas um, under the Zuma administration, we, we haven't really, the only only initiative that we really saw was the African capacity for intervention in crisis, um, the ACERC that he launched uh, in 2013, yes. in response, uh, yeah, I think the listeners will remember, you know, that was just after France had to um, rescue Mali from the jihadists that were going to take over Bamako, and Africa was so embarrassed that France had to come and um, intervene militarily in African country. And so that, but that initiative, unfortunately, almost ran to the ground. It um, It has now been integrated into the African standby force. And so it was going to be sort of a flagship um, project of President Jacob Zuma, but it never got off the ground because really South Africa couldn't get support from a number of key countries Mm. um, for it uh, to work out, like Nigeria notably. Mm. Um, so, Um. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Lizzo, mm. unfortunately, we are out of time, but your of book course. touches on a lot of things. Um, there's the xenophobic mm. attacks in South Africa. Yes. There is um, the issue of um, multinationals that come from South Africa, MTN, ShopRite, for example, and how they're viewed. Um, mm. But I'm sure for the listener, it's, it, it's going to be a fascinating read. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. All right, sure. Thank you very much. That is South African journalist and author and one of our regular analysts, um, Lizzie Lovodron, talking to us about her book, South Africa in Africa, Superpower or Neo-Colonialist. Um, I'll go out there and get it. Now, economists in South Africa have warned that the increase in the price of petrol is going to put distressed customers under renewed pressure. This follows an announcement by the Department of Energy that the price of petrol will go up by 52 cents a litre and diesel by 76 cents a litre on Wednesday. The price of illuminating paraffin will go up by 83 cents a litre. The increase has been attributed to higher prices of crude oil as well as the weaker rand. Murafetabane reports. It seems there's no end in sight for hard-pressed consumers. The fuel increase is likely to push the cost of transport much higher as well as the price of food items. Some motorists say they are now considering selling their cars as the cost of fuel escalates. I feel we are dying a slow, certain death. Maybe this is for the last time that we are pouring in. Drop the car or sell the car. I mean, it's a huge strain. Already, like, cost of living is a bit too much for us with everything. But now, just, this just means, like, I'm going to have to cut back 
on other things so I can afford petrol. Firstly, our currency is down. Now the petrol is going high. We are getting affected directly. So even food, that's what I'm saying. There's honestly something wrong. Even basic spinach, I mean a loaf of bread and milk, which is like 30 something rand for just that too. So it's honestly affecting us directly. The increase in the price of fuel is going to exert more inflationary pressures on the economy. Economist at Nedbank Busisiwe Khadebe says the increase in the price of fuel strengthens the case for the Reserve Bank to hike interest rates in an effort to tame rising inflation. Petrol is about 5.7% of the CPI basket, which means if you look at June CPI, 0.2% of it will actually come straight from this particular petrol price increase. So what does it mean for interest rates? Well, we see that because of this, we'll have a higher a CPI figure that we're going to see in June, and petrol made up about 0.2 of that monthly figure that we're going to see come through there. What does it mean? Well, when we know we know now that the Reserve Bank is on sort of an upward cycle when it comes to interest rates, they of course are going to be looking at this particular number, but it's not only this number that's going to matter, the number that we're going to see come through in June. They're going to look also at a host of other things. Consumers have been urged to prepare for tough times ahead. Economist Laura Campbell says the increase further erodes their buying power. The rise in petrol prices that will come into effect on um, Wednesday, it will further erode the growth in disposable income of consumers. Consumers have found their spending power being eroded by rising inflation due to the effects of the drought and in lag response to the depreciation of the rand and also higher interest rates. Campbell attributes the increase to the weaker rent dollar exchange rate as well as an increase in international oil prices. Last week, the price of oil touched $50 a barrel for the first time this year. Over the course of May, we've seen um, oil prices rising, and that's due to falling inventories of crude oil in the U.S., signs of a marked reduction in supplies in that country, and we saw interruptions to, um, to supply from Nigeria and also the wildfires, wildfires in Canada contributed to the increase in the price of oil. In, um, in tandem with that, we saw the rand depreciation, which raised the cost of oil imports into South Africa. Meanwhile, things could get even tougher if Standard & Poor's decides to downgrade the country on Friday. However, some economists say it is likely South Africa could avoid a downgrade. I'm Morafi Tabani in Johannesburg. And it's 17.45 Central African time. Yes, we're sending Matebula with your economic news. Thanks, as Pumalele, South African economic activity in the country remains subdued, indicating that consumers and businesses are going through a challenging period. Figures released by the South African Reserve Bank shows that private sector credit extensions slowed to 7.1%, mainly pushed down by a slow growth in credit households. The bank also says that the growth in money supply slowed to 9%. Manusha Mora is an economist at ETM Analytics. Money supply growth declined much more than expected and where's 
in the past or if we look at the broader trend in growth that had been much higher since early 2014. So now we've seen that upward trend start to falter and that reflects a combination of both weaker private sector credit extension as well as a tightening in government's expenditure. And employees of the Gupta-owned business empire in South Africa have vowed to continue their services despite the likelihood of not receiving their salaries in June. Today was the final day for the Gupta-owned Oak Bay business empire to make alternative arrangements following the decision by four merger banks to cut all their ties with the controversial family. Oak Bay has warned that the move poses an ex- existential threat to the multi-million US dollar company. One of the employees, Api Webukani, says the majority of the workers still believe in the company. No, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely continue supporting the, the company. Uh, yes, we might not know what the future holds in terms of our salaries getting paid, but we'll, we'll definitely support the company. We believe in the company, and uh, and we, 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 we're hoping for the best. You know, we're not going to say that, okay, we're not getting our salaries next week or whatever the case is, we're now leaving, you know. South African cement company PPC will increase the scale and speed of a planned capital raising exercise to reduce debt after a credit rating downgrade. PPC also braces for an expected drop in half-year profit. The company, which has pushed deeper into the rest of Africa as profit has lumped in its domestic market, is now grappling to service dollar-denominated debt after South African rand lost more than a third of its value over the past year. Shares in PPC extended losses to a 30 13-year low. This comes after it confirmed that Standard Standard & Poor's had downgraded the company's long- and short-term South African national scale corporate credit ratings by four notches. And Nigerian stocks ended at a 4.26% down on Monday to post their biggest daily fall in 16 months. This as investors waiting for clarity on the new central bank currency policy sold shares to book profits following a recent rally. Nigeria's stock market, which has the second biggest weighting after Kuwait on the MSCI Frontier Market Index, crossed below the psychologically imported level of 28,000 points as investors sold off stocks mostly from the relatively liquid banking sector. And Uganda's overall inflation rose 5.4% year-on-year in May from 5.1% a month earlier, fueled by a surge in core inflation. Core inflation, which excludes fuel, food, electricity and metered water, increased to 7% from 6.4% in April. The Central Bank of Uganda watches core inflation for its monetary policy decisions. Policymakers are due to meet next week to set the central bank rate for the next two months. Business is watching to see whether the bank loosens its policy stance again. Let's look now at your financial indicators. Uh, the dollar trading at 15.77 South African rands at 10.8 uh, Botswana Pula and 10.37 against the Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.68 to the British pound and 0.89 against the euro. Commodities gold $1,213. Platinum $978 per fine ounce. Brand crude oil is now at $49.60 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now. I'm back in two hours' time with the final one for the day.
Thank you very much, Fusane, for that update. Here's Musibudi Makura with your sports update. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news. Nigeria will face Brazil, England, and Korea DPR in Group C of the preliminary round of the FIFA Women's Under-17 Women's Championship in um, Jordan. The draw took place at the Al-Hussein Cultural Center in downtown Amman on Monday. Defending champions Japan will slug it out against Ghana, Paraguay, as well as the United States of America in Group D. Debutants Cameroon are in a tough zone that has Germany, Canada, as well as Venezuela in Group B. Host Jordan will try out Spain, Mexico and New Zealand in Group A. The Nigerian Flamingos will face Brazil's under-17 in the opening match of the competition on the 1st of October before meeting England on the 4th of October and wrap up their group stage matches against Korea DPR on the 8th of October. Meanwhile, the Nigerian Football Federation and the NFF are seriously considering lining up a home-based Super Eagles side for a final AFCON 2017 qualifier at home against Tanzania in September later this year. Channel Africa's Tony Obani has the details. Three-time African champions Nigeria have qualified for the second straight. Three-time African champions Nigeria have failed for the second straight time to qualify for the AFCON and so the home game against Tanzania will be a mere formality. Players from the domestic league are most likely to be the ones to play the Tanzania match because it will only save the federation much-needed funds but also give the players to stake a claim in the main egos ahead of the World Cup qualifiers, particularly as they were overlooked for the friendlies against Mali and Luxembourg, a top official has said. On athletics news, since 2011, 40 Kenyan athletes have failed doping tests, forcing the World Anti-Doping Agency to give the Kenyan government directives to formulate an anti-doping policy. Though they failed to be two deadlines, Kenya finally put in through, uh, finally pulled through in May. Athletics Kenya President Jackson Tawi says the joint effort is put in educating the nationals about the dangers of doping right from school up until the community level. Uh, Kenya is purely individualistic. Uh, it has not been a systematic support by any, uh, by any sector at all. And therefore, even those who have been found, they have been cautioned, they have been punished, they have been um, suspended according to the IWF rules and regulations. So um, this is what has happened. And we are, not talk- we are talking about a very small number, by the way, in Kenya. Uh, but unfortunately... When you, are in, when you are in the limelight, like, you know, when you are doing well, and then everybody thinks that uh, so you, are, you are doing almost the same thing like sure. that has been done, uh, in, uh, been done in other areas. On to cricket news, England fast bowler James Anderson has jumped up above compatriot Stuart Broad to the top of the International Cricket Council Test Bowling rankings after his fine display in the ongoing test series against Sri Lanka. Anderson has so far picked up 18 wickets in the three-match series, including a 10-wicket haul in the opening test at Leeds as he guided England to an unassailable 2-0 lead over the tourist at Chester Lee Street on Monday. The 33-year-old became the fourth England bowler to top the test rankings after Ian Bothman, Steve Harrisman, as well as 
Steve Broad, uh, rather Stuart Broad. Despite picking up 10 wickets in the Sri Lanka series, Broad dropped down to third, one place below spinner, or rather Indian spinner, um, Rashvandran Ashwan, who retained second place. Australia's Stephen Smith tops the test batsman rankings, while Joe Root maintains his second place after scoring a half-century in England's second test win against Sri Lanka. And finally, Netball News, at least 11 rookies have been selected in the Spa Proteus 25-member training squad ahead of the Spa Challenge International Netball Test Series against Wales and Durban next month. In the 2016 Netball Premier League, a host of players raised their hands and without a doubt, they gave the Proteus players a run for their money. Nonetheless, here is Spa Proteus consulting coach Norma Plummer elaborating further. Yeah, it was a little bit tough because we didn't actually see Flames or Jaguars. So, we I mean, I knew some of the depth, but I didn't know all of the depth. So um, it has been a little bit difficult. We tried to watch some videos of players we hadn't seen. But overall, I, look, in the end, I think we'll get a, an excellent team out of it. Um, you know, being here from previous... I had an insight into some of the other players that had been in squads but hadn't quite made it, like Laurel Lee had been in uh, and hadn't made it. Vims had been in, hadn't made it with me. But, you know, I saw the improvement very much so in them. So I'm looking forward to working with them again now. And uh, then picking of the team, yeah, what it's going to create is a tough selection and that's what you want. No coach wants an easy selection. Zaya Sports News at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-seven Central African Time. Remember that tomorrow we are switching from 902 to 802 on the DSTV OTPK. Let's recap our top stories now. Relatives of abducted Zimbabwean journalist released the purported first images of him in solitary confinement. South African authorities shine the spotlight on issues faced by children. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, it's Pumalele Zondi, producer, Luanda Maume, technical producer, Sihlendlovu, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. An SMS run plus 27796957930. Plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Channel Africa One on Twitter. We leave you with Women of Africa by Usual Suspects.